Hi, this is Alan Ruff, the Thursday host of A Public Affair. If you have a moment and uh, the resources, remember to support the station. And if you will, head over to wrtfm.org to donate and to see what else is going on at the station. Six foot six above sea level. I grab my mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. We bring the truth to places truth has never heard before. And good afternoon. Welcome to this, the Thursday edition of A Public Affair. I'm your host for this hour. My name is Alan Ruff. Starting in early April, as the result of U.S. Forest Service prescribed burns, the Hermit's Peak and Calf Canyon fires merged to become a massive megafire that blazed across 534 square miles of New Mexico's southern Rockies. It became the biggest wildfire in the state's history. So what were its causes and effects? What does that conflagration tell us about where the Southwest, the nation, and the planet are headed as the effects of climate change accelerate? Our guest today is conservationist and naturalist William DeBise, an accomplished award-winning author of some 11 books, including A Aridness, Climate Change, and the Future of the American West. DeBise lives on the farm he has tended since 1976 in the remote village of El Valle in Mexico's Sangre de Cristo Mountains. William DeBise, welcome to WORT, a public affair. Of course, we'll be drawing from your uh, recent Tom's Dispatch piece, New Mexico's Megafires, marking a turning point for people, land, and the Forest Service. Again, William, welcome. Thanks very much, Alan. It's nice to be with you. Let's begin with a description of the fires that ravaged northern New Mexico last spring, their origin and what they encompassed. Tell our listeners about uh, that the Hermit's Peak Calf Canyon fire. Well, it came on the heels of a very dry, very warm uh, late winter and spring. And um, the Forest Service ignited, I think it was on April the 6th, and ignited a prescribed burn just about 15 miles west of Las Vegas, New Mexico, not to be confused with Las Vegas, Nevada. Las Vegas, New Mexico is just a little town, 13,000 people. Um, was a major uh, stop along the Santa Fe Trail in the old days. Uh, and the fire, which was intended to reduce fuel loading in the forest um, in order to reduce the risk of rampant wildfire, the prescribed fire got out of hand. There was miscommunication and surprise about the weather that developed, which included incredibly high, suddenly turbulent winds that blew the fire out of its prescribed area and sent embers into the bone dry forest above and beyond it. Um, once the fire got out of the area that it was intended to be contained in, it just started running rampant. And meanwhile, uh, another fire started just a few days later, the Calf Canyon fire, uh, which was what you call a sleeper fire. Uh, back in the coldest month of the winter in January, the Forest Service had set fire to piles of what we call slash, waste wood that was uh, built up, uh, these piles built up, as part of a forest thinning operation. And the piles were burnt in January, and they seemed to, the, the fires in those piles seemed to be out completely. Many successive snowfalls came, the coldest weather of the year, but one of the fires under one of the piles kept smoldering. Sometimes you ignite the root of a sawn down tree, and the fire just keeps going in that root for a long time. Well, with the winds of April 
that fire came back to life and was soon surging over the mountains. And that fire, the Calf Canyon, merged with the Hermit Peak fire. And uh, the two together were a storm of fire that eventually consumed 341,000 acres of uh, forest land. Talk about the damage to the natural and human landscape. Uh, you talk about the immeasurable toll on people's lives uh, that became a turning point in the lives of all those who experienced the fire. Talk about uh, that, that damage. Well, there are the immediate um, costs of the fire. And somewhere around 425 homes were destroyed. Uh, many more outbuildings, garages, sheds, barns, etc., were also destroyed. Water systems were destroyed. Uh, roads were messed up. Uh, all kinds of uh, damages to the domestic world in which people live. But in addition, the landscape that burned is sort of a, a landscape of the heart. It's lands where people have grazed their cattle for hundreds of years. It's lands where people hunt. Um, uh, they collect wood for winter heating. Uh, they, they ramble about. And these lands, too, are, are burnt. Um, the fire even crossed the high mountain divide over 11,000, maybe even 12,000 feet. Uh, to go into the heart of the Pecos wilderness, which is one of the gems or was one of the gems of New Mexico and really of the whole national wilderness preservation uh, system. And uh, a large part of the heart of the Pecos was burned up. Uh, so this is a fire that has produced uh, landscape altering effects um, on hundreds of thousands of acres that, that mean a lot to a lot of people, not just their homes, but their rambling areas. But the effects of the fire, in a way, are only just begun because the, the landscape once burned is vulnerable to terrific runoff events. And we've been having very strong rains and the consequent floods in New Mexico, in the burned area, have buried people's fields in ash and mud. Uh, they've caused more damage to houses. Uh, two people died in a flash flood on Tecolote Creek, the flash flood coming out of the burned area. And another person uh, was reported missing from that flash flood. I don't know the uh, whether that person has been found or not. You're listening to William Debye's conservationist and naturalist talking to us today from his home in New Mexico. We're talking about fire, flood, uh, catastrophe, and what it means in this age of climate change. Talk about the Take, take a little further. You, you talk in your article about the ecological character of the region and how that may, may have been irreparably damaged. Well, first, it's, it's worth noting that not all of the area burned with the same severity, so that there are some areas of forest that will survive within the burned area where um, only some of the trees were killed. Unfortunately, there was a high proportion of severe burn in the area, and those areas basically have no trees alive on them now. Some of them burned so severely that there's, there's nothing has come back in the understory either. Uh, in some areas, grasses and shrubs have begun with the summer rains to recolonize the area, and that's always a good sign. But the fundamental takeaway is that we're really in a new age, a new climatic age. 
and there's no guarantee in fact there's a probability that the normal succession back to forest in the ecosystem will not take place because conditions are drier and hotter than they used to be so the expectation that yes we lost a lot but eventually the land will come back and it will be as it was before that expectation is probably not going to hold up we're going to see new landscapes uh, arising in fact a um, long time ago as as this period of uh, mega fires began an ecologist friend said to me bill if you believe in reincarnation and if you get to choose what you'll be reincarnated as don't choose to be a tree in the southwest much better to select being a clonal shrub which is to say a shrub that can sprout from its roots like new mexico locust or like gamble oak shrubby almost it's like uh, the chaparral of california in a way and i think a lot of our forests are going to succeed into a kind of chaparral condition you know will you you talk about in, in your piece you talk about the uh, fire season as being much longer than it used to be uh, and the fires are much larger what fact what factors do you attribute that to well the length of uh, fire season is mainly owed to a warmer environment uh, probably some shift some reduction in late winter precipitation may also be involved but basically fire season is a minimum of a month longer on the front end and a month longer on the back end uh, in the fall uh, it's probably longer even than that now the, the conclusion of that two-month extension was reached in a article that i think came out in 2006 and so changes since then um, have surely extended that that lengthening of the fire season so that's that's the world we live in it's a lot more flammable than it used to be there's there's been a lot of in the news lately of course about the water situation in the southwest um, lake mead and lake powell on the colorado and, and so on in your piece you mentioned that plummeting water levels have are jeopardizing the capacity of both both lakes to produce hydroelectricity that bodes ill higher electric uh, electrical grid talk about that the probable uh, or forecast ramifications well the the water level in both powell and mead is coming down dangerously close to the level in the dams of the intakes for the electrical generating systems. And so when the water gets too close to the intakes for the generating system, um, there's not as much force behind the water. And of course, if the water drops below the intakes, then there's no water at all to go through the system and turn the generators. So that's where we're getting to. And um, so the yield of electricity is going down and as is the uh, as is the water level itself and that water generating electricity is very important to cool for instance phoenix in the summertime uh, the generators uh, at uh, uh, glen canyon dam which holds back lake powell um, turn on to a higher level in to meet the the peaking needs of a hot day in phoenix and uh if glen canyon dam can't produce that electricity that's a big hole in the uh, supply side of the electrical grid similarly lake mead its generators help pump water from the colorado up and over the mountains to get to uh, Los Angeles and to San Diego, lifting that water and putting it into another watershed to flow to the big cities 
consumes an enormous amount of electricity, and that comes mainly from from Hoover Dam. And, and of course, uh, preparing for this hour, I, I read that uh, we're now talking about the the mega drought, the second worst drought in 1,200 years in the region. It's just uh, phenomenal. Yeah, and it's, in a way, it's phenomenal that we can even know this, but that's what the, uh, the science of dendrochronology, the study of tree rings, has been able to teach us, to give us a long-term view of uh, what, the, what the precipitation, what the hydrology of vast ecosystems has been for thousands of years. Again, you're listening to William Dubai's a naturalist and conservationist and natural history writer uh, writing from New Mexico, author. We'll open up the phone lines at oh, 1230, about half past the hour at 608-256-2001 if you want to join us with a question or brief comment for uh, William Dubai's, again, 608-256-2001, extension 9. William, a, a good part of your piece talks about uh, the U.S. Uh, Forest Service, uh, its land treatment, what it was, what it has become, uh, as a, a contributor, not just in, in the matter of uh, these um, prescribed burns, uh, but there's a much larger story there that entangles uh, policy and uh, activity of the Forest Service with climate change as contributing factors. To give, our, give our listeners an idea of that, some sense of that. Well, it's a sort of turbulent history. The Forest Service came into being back in 1905 under the administration of Teddy Roosevelt. Already the nation had amassed quite a few forest reserves, primarily around the, the West. And this new agency was created by Roosevelt and his Lieutenant Gifford Pinchot uh, to take care of those lands. And it was a small, mostly struggling agency in its early years. That's no surprise. Um, until 1910, when the big blow up occurred in Idaho and Western Montana in the Northern Rockies. And there was a Holocaust level fire that blew up there. And the Forest Service fought it members of the Forest Service fought it in, in ways that reported as truly heroic. And this, this adventure, this drama, this uh, the heroic action fighting back the big blow up seared the Forest Service into the national consciousness. And it became known as the firefighting agency. Um, PR campaigns uh, that capitalized on the anti-fire icon of Smokey Bear uh, later in the 30s and 40s and 50s sort of crystallized and, and strengthened that branding. Um, but there was a problem. This mission of all-out fire suppression blinded the Forest Service to the role, the positive, the constructive role of fire in many forest ecosystems, where in order to prevent excessive fuel buildup, there should be every decade or 15 years, a so-called light fire that burns through the forest, staying on the ground, consuming seedlings and downed wood and, and saplings and underbrush and preventing the buildup of too much fuel. Um, in the absence of understanding this, the Forest Service continued to suppress all fires in all ecosystems, and we had exactly that kind of buildup of fuel that I was just warning against, and that results in the fire climbing through the understory fuels into the canopies of the trees and pushed by wind and by the velocity of the, of the, the, the convection of the fire itself, 
causes what's called a, a crown fire and the entire stand dies. Those are the conditions we saw with the Hermit Peak uh, Calf Canyon fire. And so the Forest Service is in a way re partly responsible for the vehemence of the fire as a result of its suppression of all fire for the last 115 years. Again, 608-256-2001, extension 9, if you wish to uh, join this conversation with a question or, or a brief comment, again, give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension uh, 9. And at one point in your article, you talk about to say that macro conditions have rendered the Forest Service's procedures uh, obsolete should not obscure the issue of human fallibility. You, you mentioned in passing this review of what occurred uh, as a host that uncovered a host of minor, minor bungles that unleashed the catastrophe. Go into that a little bit, some of those specifics. We know, we mentioned, of course, the prescriptive fires and so on. Well, the, the first thing to understand is that the prescribed fire was conducted according to the rules. There were no breaches of Forest Service procedure, uh, no serious breaches. Um, everything should have worked, but, but it didn't. And why didn't it? Well, the chief forester, Randy Moore, has said, we're now experiencing conditions on the ground that are unprecedented in dryness and, uh, and in wind velocity. And that means that our rule book, which was based on an earlier, more stable period, is out of date. So that's the first problem. But over and above that, there were breakdowns in communications. Uh, there were um, problems of teams being in the wrong location for a brief period of time. Uh, that allowed, that contributed to the fire's escape. Uh, all the usual kinds of things when you have a large team of people trying to coordinate on a complex pro project. Sometimes equipment doesn't work, a radio fails, something goes wrong. You always have backup plans. You always can scramble and try to find a workaround to, to make things go better. But under the circumstances, which were so extraordinarily dry with such a powerful uh, driving wind, there wasn't time to make the fixes. And so what we're seeing is that the whole business of fire management, and especially of prescribed fire, now has razor thin margins for error. The Forest Service has to conduct its operations with a precision that may, frankly, be out of reach. Outmoded, outdated, uh, inadequate for what is, what is now occurring. You talk about the Forest Service as two agencies. Uh, there's the Forest Service committed to the day-to-day -day custodianship of the national, national forest system. And then, the, and then there's the fire service um, your description of it brought to mind, uh, well, a, a kind of militarization of the agency. Yeah, the, the Forest Service really is two agencies uh, in one. There is the operation that manages the national forest on a day-to-day -day basis, and that tends to be a rule-bound and low-morale, uh, fundamentally un uninspired uh, agency that has um, so much red tape and uh, in environmental regulation to work through that it's very hard for it to get very much done. And then you have the side of the Forest Service that fights the big fires. And a lot of people call that the fire service. And it has plenty of money. It has organizational coherence, it has high morale, it's like a crack military operation. And it has an air force, it has armor, uh, 
you know, the analog to what in an army would be the tanks uh, are pumper trucks and bulldozers and, and masticators that grind up trees and feller bunchers that can cut them and stack them at the same time. Um, and then there is the infantry, these, uh, these terrifically hardworking fire crews recruited from all around the West and some in the East as well. Uh, that get out there on the fire line and do the some of the hardest work you can imagine doing. And some of those fire crews are highly trained. They're like commandos. In the Hermit's Peak Calf Canyon fire at one point, there were uh, fire crews deployed from helicopters, and maybe not whole crews, but several specialists who would rappel down from a helicopter hovering in the air into a forest with their chainsaws and then cut open a helipad there for future uh, flights to bring in uh, troops and land them. Uh, so that's the kind of operation that we see with the fire service. And frankly, on this fire, they gave daily briefings that were very informative and, and professionally presented. Uh, they did a great job of reaching out and, and talking to people. Um, our engineer, Megan, tells me that we do have a caller that would like to get in with a question or comment. Hello, Thomas, you're on the air. Uh, hello, uh, Alan. It's a good show. My uh, question is that with the climate change coming, it's basically, basically like a rock rolling downhill. As it grows downhill, it gains stream and goes faster than people realize. And so I would like to know what... The, his comment is on that, and as for the wind in these fires, couldn't that be utilized to use turbines to gather the wind to uh, generate electricity? Uh, and I'll hang up and listen to his answer, and thank you for the program. Thank you, Thomas. Well, yes, indeed, and uh, wind generation for electricity is one of the fastest growing uh, sectors of uh, the energy industry. And we see a lot of uh, wind farms being built in New Mexico. I'm happy to say that my rural electrical cooperative, uh, as of this point right now, is 100% daytime renewable relying on wind and solar. It's one of the first uh, electric cooperatives in the country to be able to make this statement. It's called the Kit Carson Electric Cooperative. Um, as to the increasing momentum of climate change, I think the caller is exactly right. And, uh, and the challenges are going to be increasing uh, markedly year by year by year. There's a little, little debate about that at this point. Um, and sometimes with these big fires, when it's really dry, when there's a lot of fuel, and when there's a, a wind behind it, the best thing you can do, and this, is, this was the case with the Hermit Peak Calf Canyon fire, the best you can do is just get out of the way. And that's what the Forest Service did with its uh, firefighting for weeks at a time, it focused primarily just on protecting houses and uh, other private property in the forest, in, in the fire's path. Uh, 20, almost 30,000 people were evacuated from the path of the fire and, uh, and protection crews went into their communities after the people left or most of the people left and did what they could to protect the, the homes and, and other buildings. Um, on the subject of wind, I would add that in the science of climate change, which is really highly developed at this point, probably the least studied feature of climate change is the wind. What kind of uh, phenomena from wind should we be expecting uh, as the climate warms? And um, 
uh, we're seeing more derechos, more haboobs. These are terms for sudden windstorms that are cropping up in places they hadn't cropped up before, uh, windstorms of great violence. I don't know what the science says about tornado frequency, but certainly the kinds of winds we experienced in New Mexico that drove this fire were unprecedented. Uh, there were nine straight days at one point, one critical point, when the winds were so high that planes had to stay on the ground. And that severely limited the Forest Service's ability to fight the fire. All we could do is kind of stand back and watch. Um, Megan, our, our engineer, has sent me a note of a question from a listener, Michael, who wants who asks, what is the difference between the Forest Service and the National Park Service? And what is the difference, di excuse me, the difference between these two entities as far as their roles are concerned? The Forest Service takes care of the National Forest System. And the National Forest System is comprised of lands that were specifically um, reserved from the US public domain and designated as either Forest Service or later National Forests. The BLM primarily manages lands that remained in the public domain and uh, were never withdrawn for a specific conservation use. That de definition really doesn't hold up all that well anymore, but those are the two largest uh, public land management agencies, the National Forests and the B Bureau of Land Management. A third is the National Park Service, which manages national parks, monuments, and other elements of the national park system. Each of those elements was withdrawn either from the public domain or even from a national forest by a specific act of Congress. So we have a complicated land management structure in the United States. And there's yet a fourth major agency, which is the, the United States Fish and Wildlife Service, which manages our national wildlife refuge system, which uh, includes quite a few lands in the lower 48 and an enormous portion of Alaska. Again, this hour you're listening to William Devise, who is a naturalist and conservationist. We're talking about, well, the fires in New Mexico this past spring, uh, the implications of that uh, in regard to climate change and, if you will, mismanagement of, uh, well, a good chunk of the country. 256 608 256 2001 extension 9 I want to talk one, one of the parts of your article that I uh, was fascinated by was in a sense the longer backstory regarding the impact of the Hermit's Peak uh, Calf Canyon fire you talk about that you allude to that longer history um, that in, in multi-ethnic New Mexico, history and cu culture ca color every calamity that the vast majority of these of the people evacuated from the path of the fire were uh, Hispanic or indigenous uh, and so on, with some of them family, having roots going way back to well before there was, uh, well, before the um, Mexican-American War of 1846 and so on. Talk about that uh, and what it meant uh, because, it, of course, in came the Forest Service and set a lot of these folks in collision course or collided with the lives and traditions, the history of people in the region. Well, this part of the United States was acquired by conquest, not just against Native Americans, uh, but a conquest against the nation of Mexico, uh, of lands that had previously been part of the Spanish Empire. And so uh, New Mexico has, uh, I think, a minority majority of Hispanic Americans, uh, the, the most populous uh, demographic group 
uh, in New Mexico is Hispanic, and an, an enormous portion of those people uh, are descended from families who were here in this land before the United States uh, acquired it through warfare. Um, and so there's a, a lot of the land held by those people's ancestors was in the form of land grants. And a lot of those land grants wound up being incorporated uh, by fair means and foul into the national forest system. So there's always been a resentment uh, toward the Forest Service for land abuses, land grant acquisition abuses uh, that date back more than a century. And on top of that, the Forest Service, which was viewed as a kind of, kind of colonizing arm of a very distant government uh, centered in Washington, D.C., uh, the Forest Service imposed restrictions on the use of the mountains for grazing, for hunting, for, well, not for hunting, but, but for uh, uh, timber cutting and, and uh, uh, even um, cutting of wood for home use. Uh, so all of these things created a tension between the inhabitants of the region and the Forest Service. And now this big fire, which was started by the Forest Service, both sources of the big fire were started by the Forest Service. And so that culpability only adds to the resentment uh, that was already here. I found it very interesting, of course, that what you're talking about is another uh, another case, another illustration of a long that long historical process of dispossession and uh, enclosure of the commons. That these lands were used in, as commons in much the same way that uh, the process took place in Europe before. Um, there was this encroachment and dispossession off the land, and that it's still the effects of that still linger. That's right. It is analogous to that enclosure of the commons in the old world, but it's not exactly the same because viewed from a different angle, the creation of the national forests and national parks was also the creation of a commons, but it was a different commons. It was a commons in theory for the whole nation as opposed to a commons for the local people who depended on that land. So it was a trans, it wasn't a privatization. It was a shift in terms of the, the circle being served. But it was a privatization also through the period when the Forest Service was truly subservient to the timber industry and was uh, um, primarily providing uh, uh, logs for private corporations. So it's, it's a complicated historical terrain uh, to talk about. You know, as we get toward the uh, end of the hour, we have a couple people waiting online patiently. So let's go back to the phones. Hello, Steve, you're on the air. Yes, uh, Mr. Dubai, if I've got your name correct. Uh, Getting back to the shrinking reservoirs of Lakes Powell and Mead, which support the creature comforts of Phoenix and L.A., uh, which is surely due to altered precipitation in the central Rockies, what is the climatological correlation between a warming planet and the snowpack in Colorado? Thank you. Good question, and it's complicated. Um, basically, uh, I think what we're seeing in the Southern Rockies is some diminishment of overall precipitation. And so that reflect, is reflected in decreased stream flow in the big rivers. But there's something else going on, and that is that warmer temperatures, as the temperature goes up by small increments, evaporation goes up by large incre increments. Uh, that means that in a warmer environment, more water is lost to evaporation 
and less is available from the snowpack to uh, simply melt and run into the rivers. The vegetation, the trees, are pumping more water through. They're transpiring more water in this increased evaporative environment. Basically, what we're seeing is that the droughts of the future, even if they feature the same level of precipitation or the same loss of precipitation as the droughts of the past, will be much more severe because the evaporative loss will be so much higher because of the, the greater, the higher temperatures. So when, for instance, Alan earlier cited the fact that the present drought we're in is the second driest period since 800 uh, of the current era in the last 1200 years. Well, the fact is this drought if it weren't for greenhouse gas pollution, would be fairly ordinary. It wouldn't be a record setter. It would be just one of another many droughts in the history of the Southwest. But it is a record setter because we're hotter and because evaporation is so much higher. Let's go right to Mike, who's waiting patiently. Hello, Mike, you're on the air. Yeah, hi. Um, I was calling uh, because you mentioned the issue of land grants. I was wondering if you could discuss briefly the Tijera uh, revolt of 1967 in Mexico and the fact that I think uh, Tijera was basing uh, his claims on the existence of Spanish land grants in northern New Mexico. And I can take my answers off the air. And thanks for a very stimulating talk. Bye for now. Well, thank you. And that's, uh, it's interesting that, that someone in the radio shed of uh, this station in Wisconsin knows about the Tijerina uh, Alianza uprising in northern New Mexico in 1967. And indeed, that was a, a, a land grant protest, if you will. Uh, the, uh, the, Reyes Tijerina, the leader, and his valientes in the Alianza Federales de, la, de Mercedes Reales. Um, Tijerina and his people uh, went to the county courthouse in Tierra Amarilla, county seat of Rio Riba County, and attempted to make citizens' arrests of certain public uh, officials. Things got nasty. Um, a couple of people were shot uh, and uh, basically all hell broke loose. Um, and it was founded on uh, a protest against uh, land-grant injustice. Uh, without going on a whole lot longer, I'll probably do best just to leave it there. But quite right. That was an important point in the recent history of New Mexico. Let's squeeze one last caller in. Hello, Carlin, you're on the air. Hi. I woke up um, one night hearing BBC News was on, and they were talking about fire you can walk with. It was a man's voice with deep reverence saying, it's a fire we can walk with. And it turned out to be Aboriginal people of Australia. And they also said something about layers of wisdom, um, about plant and animal cycles that they'd watch or knew about before they'd set a fire, and a fire they could walk with. Um, and it just, I don't know, I went back to sleep maybe. But um, I thought Native Americans used to do that, you know, used to, I'm sure people everywhere use fire as a tool to take care of things, the garden that they, um, so I wish they Thank were you. in charge of national parks and uh, no you, fuel, Carly. you don't, fuel, the, left the dirt healthy somehow and, well, anyway, if you know anything about that or, I'm uh, curious, bye-bye. Thank you, Carlin.
Thanks, Carla, and that's an excellent point. Indigenous people the world over had very effective, sustainable, and productive relationships with fire. Um, in its arrogance, mainstream Anglo-Western uh, society in the United States uh, did its best to erase those heritages. And only in recent decades have uh, the authorities, as it were, begun to realize the wisdom of some of those ancient practices, which under the best of circumstances um, work very, very well. Part of our problem now is that with the fuel buildup from a century and more of fire suppression, going back to those old practices of light fire, fire you can walk with, is exceedingly dangerous in some situations. So we've got a long way to go to find a new and appropriate balance. You know, we're getting right down to the end of the hour and our last caller, Carlin, something I wanted to hope to get to. Uh, and that is, you talked about how the descendants of the original dispossessed, that is the Hispanics that we alluded to earlier, uh, have been joined by villagers, small-scale farmers, loggers, foragers of traditional food and medicine, indigenous people, and Asequia Parciantes caretakers, the age-old irrigation ditches. And it ties in nicely to uh, traditions that have been shunted aside, practices that have been shunted aside, uh, but these people joining uh, in an attempt to, well, if it's possible, make right, make do, make good uh, off of these fires? Yes, people are trying to reclaim authority to manage uh, the lands on which they depend in a way that really is sustainable. Um, to give it some credit, the Forest Service has made some progress in recent decades, becoming somewhat more sympathetic to those aspirations. But I think it could greatly profit by making a leap toward uh, managing the national forests in northern New Mexico as though they were still land grants, as though they were still commons that were um, intended uh, for the best uses of the local populations. And in, in pursuing that, that goal to follow some of the uh, older wisdoms uh, that are still um, here and still relevant. As a result of climate change, uh, you say there, there will be plenty more, uh, plenty more fires, more fire in total. Are, you're right, really, that it, we're in a dawning new age shaped by human rot conditions that has been called the Anthropocene. Uh, but you use this other uh, word uh, or, or descriptor, descriptor that I hadn't, been, hadn't come across before, the Pyrocene, the epic of fire now global in scope, uh, that this just isn't a problem of the Western United States, but obviously everywhere from Siberia to, well, you name it. Uh, and um, you see any, uh, any hope really? I, 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 often try, I often try to conclude my uh, uh, discussions here every Thursday uh, asking my guests for some sense of hope, uh, renewal, possibilities for the future. Uh, and at this level, uh, uh, in this age of climate change, of global warming, of uh, catastrophic proportions globally, uh, what can we say? Well, actually, uh, I wrote a book on that subject. It's called The Trail to Kanjiroba, uh, Rediscovering Earth in an Age of Loss. And we are looking at a lot of loss ahead. Um, we're going to have to sort of prepare ourselves to experience it, to be ready for it. Um, the forests are going to change. We're entering, as you say, an epoch of burning the piracine. Uh, we're going to lose forests throughout the Southwest, throughout much of the world, 
it's not going to happen. It is happening all around us. And so we need to cultivate our adaptability and we need to continue to uh, encourage ourselves to refresh ourselves, to nourish ourselves by appreciating the beauty of this marvelous planet that we live on and cultivating that beauty uh, out in the environment and also in our hearts as we uh, try to deal with the storms ahead. So hope is a complicated term. It means different things to different people. And uh, so one of the other little tasks ahead of us is to refine our ideas about hope and to trust in the uncertainty of the future. Give our, uh, give our uh, listeners two things. One, the title of your forthcoming book that you just mentioned, uh, and ways perhaps in which uh, they can stay connected with you uh, learn to learn more. Um, a way to stay collected, connected is uh, via my website, which is williamdebuise.com. There's information on my books and um, all my articles and so forth. And the, the book I mentioned is not forthcoming. It came out uh, just shy of a year ago, about 11 months ago. And Sorry. it's called The Trail to Kanjiroba. I had, it's the third book in a trilogy. One book, in, the first book in the tr trilogy was on climate change, the second on species lost. And after those two books, I was pretty And the third book is about recovering from that heart sickness and finding a, a kind of hope that is sustainable and that keeps me going. And, uh, and the, the trail to Kanjiroba is based on medical expeditions that I accompanied uh, in uh, the far reaches of Nepal in the Himalaya, providing health care to people who rarely get it. Well, I want to thank you uh, ever so much for your time, your energy, and, and your productivity, because we need more voices. We need better, deeper understandings of what, what we're all facing. So I want to thank you very much on behalf of Megan, our engineer, Rochelle, our producer, uh, our listeners, everybody out there. You've been listening to William DeBe... De, sorry, I've been slaughtering your name the whole hour. Uh, William Du Bois on, uh, well, natural and conservationists. I've been your host for this hour. My name is Alan Ruff, and I'll be speaking with you next week. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground, another pirate station. We bring the truth to places truth has never heard before. We bring the sound communication of our